on air, online, on digital, digital, and the ABC Listen app. The Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. And coming up today, ridding a Ferno Island of feral cats. This week we've got a, a massive project pulled together to look at doing some operational planning for the cat control project that is part of the island land management work that we're doing. A variety of different skills and knowledges in order for us to, to make a, a really sweet operational plan to get rid of these cats. And the joys of shearing alpacas. At the first start of the season, because of the rain period, it was very good come off very clean. Towards the end of the season we always find that it becomes a little bit more dirtier because alpacas love to roll. It just makes my job a little bit harder but been pretty good overall. I think that would be a tough job, don't you? Shearing alpacas in Tasmania, big job. That's coming up, that story, and the fight against feral cats on Clark Island, one of the Ferno group. That story as well. G'day, Tony, with you on this Tuesday, where there are grim predictions for many of the mainland wine grape-growing areas. Some expected to lose up to 50% of the crop, and prices are still well down. Also, there are questions about the meat and livestock predictions of the cattle herd. One expert saying the numbers are being grossly exaggerated. That story coming up along with a detailed look at the weather as well and your thoughts on any issues via the text line. Love to hear from you on this Tuesday, 0438 922 936. That number, 0438 922 936. First up, the looming grape harvest on the mainland does not look good in many areas. Reports of 50% loss of crops in some major regions because of disease, low prices per tonne and delays caused by the weather. We'll look at the mainland in just a moment, but first to Tasmania. And Tasmanian grapes are coming along thanks to the recent dry weather, even after a tough start. Some may be a little late than expected this year as each vineyard sits in its own microclimate. Meg Powell dropped into one of the oldest vineyards in the northwest to see how farmer Phil Dolan's grapes were going. It's it was a bad start, very 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 wet. I think it's going to be a late pick. I mean, the cherries had a hard time, didn't they? I was just reading, but um, it kind of just suddenly dried out, and um, I don't think it will catch up to a normal season. I think it will still be a little bit late, but um, it's certainly warming up now. I mean. The last couple of weeks has been ridiculous. We had we've had um, twenty mil of rain about a week ago, and then six mil a couple of days ago, but uh, still pretty dry, I think. And then as soon as you get that, the wind comes up and <laughs> it goes anyway. But um, yeah, it's a it's a weird season. How is uh, your yield looking this year, and how did it go last year? Uh, as I said, down last year was down about thirty percent from the previous year. This year it looks kind of average, I'd say. Although we had a lot of possum damage, I think because they were doing some logging down there, and we probably got invaded by the possums moving. <laughs> so I should have got onto it a bit earlier. We'll learn for next year, but I think it's going to be pretty good average yield. And how do you harvest? Do you get workers in? Or? Yeah, 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 hand harvested. Because we, we don't take our grapes down until the following morning. So if you machine harvest, you've got to kind of get it looked after pretty quick because it, it pulls the grapes off so the skin's broken. So it starts fermenting and stuff, you know. We just cut the bunches off so can take it down the next day. How will you go for workers and how did you go last year? Pretty good, yeah. We got um, a crowd of Filipino wives that... <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> They're really good. 
They're really good workers. You know, Who knew they, they liked grape picking? They do, and they uh, they can work and talk at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> no, they are very good. I used to be stressed to get workers to pick, and then um, my daughter suggested we advertise on Gumtree, and goodness me, my phone was running so hot. <laughs> and, you know, with backpackers and everything, we're short of backpackers now, but um, there's a backpackers place in Devonport. We just used to ring them, and they'd bring out how many we wanted on a bus. I mean, Perfect. Pretty good, yeah. It's uh, one of those jobs that's a bit more appealing to backpackers too, probably. Yes, yes, yeah. I know um, people who pick, because they, they generally work on farms around the place, they say that working on grapes is better because they're standing there and working at waist height, whereas if they're doing strawberries or things like that, they're bending over. So, uh, and you don't have to get up on ladders or anything. No, exactly, yeah. yeah so it's, quite, it's quite good work. You know, they, they do enjoy it, yeah. Do you farm anything else here? No, we used to have sheep, but um, we had a, a barber's pole worm, which was, you know must have come through on a flood or something. So we got rid of all the sheep because they were dropping dead. It's quite a horrible worm. I'm, I'm not quite too sure about it, but I think it gets into the veins and sucks the blood rather than just in the stomach eating the food. You know, nasty. Horrible death. So vineyard's enough to make a living. Uh, not really, no, no. It's, my wife's a full-time nurse. If we only had the vineyard, we would have to have a cellar door and stuff like that because um, we, we sell wholesale and we sell the grapes, but the, we, we, we couldn't live off just the vineyard. The, the price that we get for grapes is like $3,000 a tonne, whereas on the mainland, they, you know, in the Yarra Valley, they might get 1200 but out in the... Riverland and stuff, they might only get $300 a tonne, but, but they get 20 tonnes or more to the hectare, whereas we only get about eight. And uh, they machine pick, whereas we hand pick, and we have to maintain more because of disease pressure. You know, the disease pressure in the hot areas is not as much as it is here. So running costs are higher, but, you know, we don't get the yield to make... If you had... 50 acres you could probably just sell the grapes and it would be okay you know but um how are so prices are good tasmanian oh yeah yeah well i mean um it would i mean the the stuff that's grown by the hundred tons i mean that goes into the box the cask wine isn't it you know we've all been there yeah oh so, as i have <laughs> yeah so um the cost price of the wine in a bottle here is about Oh, between three dollars fifty and four dollars fifty. That's just for the grapes, right? You know, and then you see on Facebook, oh, buy six bottles of wine, five dollars a bottle, free postage. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay. Definitely not Tasmanian grapes. No, definitely not <laughs> Tasmanian wine. No. Thinking of getting a few cows just to do a good job, keeping the place a bit cleaner. Um, we got some horses, but they're a bit picky. <laughs> They don't go and eat the rubbish. No. <laughs> yes, I mean, life is good. We're enjoying it. I mean, um, I'm glad we produce a wine, you know, that people can enjoy. Um, I don't think we're going to be as rich as Bill Gates, but... Uh, Unfortunately. We, we'll enjoy life. <laughs> yes, enjoying life. Phil Dolan sitting in the sun with Meg Powell next to his vineyard at Kimberley near Railton in the state's northwest. Now to the mainland where things are not looking good in many areas. Normally by this time of the year, wineries in the Sunraysia region on the mainland would have started vintage. 
But that isn't the case. Paul Derrico is the Executive Officer of Murray Valley Wine Growers. I spoke to Kelly Hollingworth about the vintage delay. Some three to four weeks behind the early harvest we've had in previous years. What's led to things being delayed? The main thing has been the cooler um, spring growing season and the uh, relatively mild summer that we've had. And then on top of that, we've also had some disease issues around the district as well. All grape growers, so including table grapes and dried fruit, have faced disease pressure. How badly affected are wine grape crops? At Murray Valley Wine Growers, we are estimating um, the crop this year will be down by about 30% on our average production. And that would equate to about 100,000 tonnes for the Murray Valley region. You're anticipating the crop will be down 30% because of diseases. Is it all downy mildew related or are there other problems as well? Oh, the majority of the disease pressures have come from downy mildew. But look, we're probably seeing small pockets of powdery mildew uh, around the district. And then there's always the worry of botrytis in bunches, depending on how the weather holds up. Are the other major wine grape growing regions facing similar challenges to what you're seeing in the Murray Valley? Well, absolutely. Um, We understand from the Riverina region that they've probably been affected worse than uh, the Murray Valley. they're predicting around the 50% um, crop loss mark with disease um, in that region. Uh, again, that's mainly uh, downy mildew, whereas the Riverland, um, there's talk there that they'll probably be 20 or 25% down. So, yeah, certainly the disease pressures haven't been limited to the Murray Valley region. If that's the case that the crop will be down, uh, is there still much uncontracted fruit looking for a winery? Well, our um, grapes for sale register doesn't have the same level of listings this year that we've had uh, in in previous years. Last year, we were close to 30,000 tonnes on the register, whereas this year, we're probably down about 60% on that. It was a very challenging year for wine grape growers in the Murray Valley region last year. Is this a sign that some of those growers are no longer in the industry, or is it that some of the growers that might have had uncontracted fruit last year have found places for it to go? I think it's a mixture of all of those. Certainly there's been a few growers that have left the industry. Uh, We've also had, uh, with those disease outbreaks, um, some large crop losses around the district. And then there are some wineries that have been out there chasing some fruit, um, particularly the whites. So, uh, no, it's a mix of all of those. It was the red grapes that people were having trouble uh, getting a good price for last year. Is that still going to be the case? Well, this year's prices are in fact uh, worse than they were last year. With Cab Sav, uh, Merlot and Shiraz, um, probably the best price this year is around the, the $300 mark on average um, and some as low as you know, down to the mid-100s uh, and, and low 200s. But I think just with the disease pressures and uh, the lack of fruit that will ultimately um, be achieved in the district, that we are hopeful that growers will be able to sell the fruit that's still there in sound and clean condition. What kind of feedback are you getting from growers if they are being offered prices in the mid-hundreds to low-two-hundreds for fruit because that must be below the cost of production? Oh, it's absolutely below the cost of production. Many growers are really disappointed, but they understand the climate of the wine industry at the moment. They're still hopeful that prices will improve as we get into vintage a bit more and that becomes evident that uh, the crops aren't there and there'll be 
know, a slight increase in demand we'd expect. So they remain hopeful that prices will improve. Is it a better scenario for the whites? It, whites, as well as uh, Pinot Noir. Um, Pinot Noir prices are um, oh, up around uh, the low to mid 700s with highs you know, well in excess of 900 and the lowest prices you know, around the, the mid 600s. But with whites, uh, Chardonnay is uh, in the high 300s with uh, one winery looking to pay $420 farm gut, which has caught a lot of its attention in the last few days. Likes of Gordo uh, in the in the low 300s. Um, Pinot Gris being in demand uh, with mid 500s. Uh, Prosecco is year in year out being um, the highest prices um, sort of available in the district, and that is um, you know, in the mid 700s with uh, low prices of in, in the mid to high 500s, but uh, certainly in the high 700s if you've got Prosecco. Sab Blanc is um, Again, been uh, sought after this year with mid to high 500s available and Semillon um, in the low 300s. So the whites are a bit lower than what we would have expected, but nonetheless, as we get into harvest, the, the yields become evident. We are quite hopeful that prices will improve uh, further. Very different prices on the mainland to, compared to Tasmanian and what the Tasmanian wine growers are getting for their wines or their grapes. Murray Valley Wine Growers Chief Executive Paul Derrico talking there to Kelly Hollingworth about the low prices wine grape growers can expect on the mainland. Also, the delays to harvest and the disease, which is decimating some crops, uh, losing expected losses around the 50% mark in some big areas like the Riverina. Coming up, questions about the size of the cattle herd and getting rid of feral cats on Clark Island. Breakfast is better. We helped them with the establishment of the hospital back in 2018. With Rick Goddard. Robert Leach, how did Bonnerong compare to some of the other organisations you work with? Definitely the Roadkill Capital. And so we're really grateful to be supporting the vets that are uh, attending to these animals. The animals that are being sort of hit by cars or injured, they don't really know what day of the week it is. So to have that care seven days a week is really vital. Rick Goddard, Monday to Thursday from 5.30am on ABC Radio Hobart. Coast to Coast, this is the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. Respected livestock analyst Simon Quilty believes Meat and Livestock Australia has grossly overstated the size of the nation's cattle herd by around 3 million head. MLA came out last week projecting Australia's cattle herd would hit almost 29 million head this year, making it the biggest herd size in almost a decade. But Simon Quilty believes the numbers don't make sense and that MLA's mistake will be costly. I find them deeply concerning simply because I don't believe them. They have overstated the size of the Australian herd by 3 million head um, per year over the next three years. And simply, those animals do not exist. What makes you say that? Well, first of all, you start with the starting point of their forecast, which was 2022. And we have hard numbers saying for that period that the 2022 numbers in terms of the Australian Bureau of Statistics, the ABS, saw a 0.13% decline. The MLA numbers lay claim to a 6% increase. So right from the get-go, 
the numbers are wrong and they've got the MLA numbers, they've got at 27.5 million, but in reality, they should be probably closer to 25 and a half million. So let's start at the right starting point to begin with before even trying to forecast the following three years. And why are you more confident in the ABS numbers than MLA's numbers? Because they're, because they're hard numbers. ABS uh, do this survey every five years. We have the census in which 125,000 farmers are surveyed. And every in-between years, we have a 25,000 head survey across Australia. So I'm very confident the ABS numbers are right. And in terms of state by state, where they have the levels, they make perfect sense to me, knowing full well the female kill ratios that are going on and the changes in land use that are dramatically happening across Australia. You believe this forecast by MLA and the slaughter numbers at the moment don't kind of add up. Can you explain that to us? So when you have a herd of a certain size, it lends itself to a certain ratio of numbers to be killed. Obviously, the bigger the herd, the bigger the numbers to be killed. The strange thing is about these forecasts is that their slaughter rate I agree with, but that comes from a much lower herd, a three million less lower herd. So just simple ratios. This is basic arithmetic. And those slaughter ratios they have are too low. They do not reflect anywhere near what the slaughter ratio should be with such a large herd, in particular in 2025 at 29.5 million. And Matt, this is my concern, that it relays to the rest of the world the wrong information about Australia. It would imply to our buyers around the world that there is a wall of meat coming out of Australia, and that is not true. It will also give the wrong message to our farmers in Australia that there is going to be an avalanche of cattle once the conditions turn dry, which is very much likely this year. And once again, that is not true. In both instances, we are relaying as a country the wrong information internally and externally. I spoke to another analyst who felt that with the female slaughter ratio sitting at 43%, he felt that MLA's numbers could be feasible. What do you think of that? I think that's grossly inaccurate. In actual fact, when you look at Queensland itself, Queensland is the engine room of Australia's beef industry. And we've seen that now for the second year in a row, its rate of rebuild has actually gone down. So it was at 2.1% in the previous year's figures. And in 2022, it fell to 2%. And there are a myriad of reasons why you might say the engine room of Australia, Queensland, is spluttering. By that, I mean it is desperately trying to get going, but it can't. The main reason is because in 2020, there was enormous exodus of cattle out of Queensland into New South Wales. As New South Wales tried to rebuild by begging and borrowing and stealing every animal around this country, 
to try and quickly rebuild after the devastating drought of 2018 and 19. So the first thing is that Queensland had an exodus of cattle in 2020, and a lot of it mainly were females. Secondly, a lot of regional marginal areas of New South Wales today are being uh, taken over by sheep and goats. Exclusion fencing's played a crucial role, and the 2022 figures show a 35% increase in sheep numbers in Queensland alone, Matt. So there are numerous reasons why we've seen Queensland really slow down in its rebuild. The last reason is in 2020, 4 million hectares in Queensland alone went out of grazing. It's all in the numbers. Simon Quilty from Global Agritrend speaking with Matt Brand about the predictions for the size of the cattle herd from MLA, which he claims are grossly overstated. Well, the impact that free-ranging cats have on wildlife is well known. Feral cats are estimated to kill more than a billion reptiles, birds, frogs and mammals in Australia each year. On a remote island in Bass Strait, there's an effort underway to protect native species from feral predators by ridding the island of feral cats. Lucy Cutting has the story. Here on an island off the coast of Tasmania, a team has gathered to hunt down feral animals. Uh, The number is... I-8-11. Today we're on Lungtalanana, which is a beautiful island just south of Cape Barron in the Bass Strait. Well, this week we've got a, a massive project pulled together to look at doing some operational planning for the cat control project that is part of the island land management work that we're doing. This is bringing together a variety of different skills and knowledges in order for us to, to make a, a really sweet operational plan to get rid of these cats. That's Andre Sculthorpe a land management coordinator with the Tasmanian Aboriginal Centre. That one's a tabby, it looks like. The one we saw before also Hello, has that... I'm Lucy Cutting, and I've travelled to Lungtalanana, also known as Clark Island. It's an Indigenous protected area. In Tasmania's Ferno group of islands, the feral cats on this island are killing native species, and so far, they've proved difficult to trap. They don't seem to be interested in the trap bait of chicken or fish because of the bounty of food to be found on the island. To get on top of this problem... Andre has assembled a crack team. Well, the team, we've got the, the Pakana Rangers from the TAC and we've also got the new IPA Sea Country Rangers and we've got a whole bunch of different people. We've got Mike Johnson who's helping out with the operational plan. We've got Patrick from WWF. We've got John who's a cat trapping expert from Hobart and we've got Yvonne who's going to be assisting us with developing some drone monitoring. It must take a lot to get all of these people here in the same week and for the amount of time that you need them to be here. How much planning has gone into this? Well, logistics are the thing getting around these islands, so it's really accessed by a small plane or a small boat. So it's piling everybody in as the best we can and getting everybody here from Bridport is normally how it goes. Mm-hmm. So when you come, you want to make sure you've got everything you need because if you've forgotten something, that's it, it's yeah. gone. So what will the next few days look like here? Well, one of the main tasks for this week is to service the, the camera traps. So we've got a network of 50 camera traps set up around the island, which stay running for six months. And after every six months, we need to change the batteries and get the cameras off the SD cards. And so that's quite a mission because some of the tracks aren't too great. So it's slow going in the four-wheel drives, getting around them. So it's probably a couple of days' work just in doing that. The second thing we're doing is trialling some trapping, some cage trapping. So cage trapping can be a tricky exercise 
it, it can be effective at catching cats, but there's also some considerations around timing and what kind of bait you use and in which landscapes they're effective and which they're not. I think I'll go and speak to your drone. I'm going to call them a drone master. Um, <laughs> so how important will drones be to what you're doing today? With the cats, they're pretty cagey, and in this scrub area, it can be hard to locate them. So what we're hoping for with the drone is to find other ways of locating cats where we can't see them. So from the air with a drone and using uh, thermal or infrared technology may be useful, but this is going to be a trial. So today we're going to be putting up the drone to see what we can actually see. That drone master is Yvonne Teo of the University of Tasmania. I'm using my drone to look at the vegetation and hopefully using thermal camera to look at cats as well. So yeah, I'm just here using drone to see whether it works, to look at vegetation, set up waypoints, um, take photos, and hopefully I'll be able to see a few cats as well, mm. which can be quite challenging because they might hide in really thick bushes, um, and that's one of the, the problems using drones or even thermal cameras because it can be really hard to spot them. Could have went up. Packen arranges Dion Everett and David Lowry are checking traps and also looking at images captured by a motion-activated camera. We'll just have a look at the footage that we've downloaded from the memory card, which will not only tell us what animals are commuting back and forward through this track, it'll also let us know if our flash is working properly and if we need to offset our camera to get a better picture taken um, over this track. Look at that one. cat. Yes, that'd be a female. She's we're unsure what she, why she's travelling such vast areas at the moment, but she seems to be getting around. Black cat. Yeah, black cat, we have absolutely no idea where he is. Also at. helping out on this project is John Bowden. He's a bit of an expert in cat trapping, having trapped almost a 1,000 cats in Tasmania in less than a decade. I'm only here for a week, but I've been here three days now. Yeah, I'm really enjoying it. Beautiful yeah. spot. Uh, how many traps will you put out while you're here? Well, uh, I brought six over. There was there was ten already on the island, so we've got 16, 16 cage traps out at the moment. Is there a particular strategy to where they're placed? Yeah, we. Well, as you see, we're standing here. There's a there's a road coming coming down here, heading to the north, and we've got one one another road or or just a track going going east west, and so the cats follow the roads, and so you've got chances of a cat coming along that road and coming along and this is close to the corner and so as you know when there's a, you get an intersection you get more likely to get get traffic coming through yeah. and so this is this is here and you can see where this trap is is set mm. we've got it buried down into the sand so the cat's not walking walking on the wire so you you push it down into the sand and the cat feels is meant to feel far more comfortable going in and there's yeah. a bit of a tasty snack in there too what's yeah, that yeah so i changed the Fresh bait is essential, so I'll be changing the bait this evening. And so we use fish, cook, everything's cooked, uh, fish or chicken. Is a, yeah. Like, yeah. And have you caught a cat yet? No, oh, not yet. I'm still still hopeful, but no, at the moment we we haven't caught one. Oh, yeah. But they're definitely here. Oh, yes, there's definitely. There was there was one walk past the cage uh, last night. We had a camera out, and you can see the cage oh, in the wow. background, and it didn't go in to eat my chicken, oh, so wow. I was really... Oh, on the recipe. Oh, yeah, I was really <laughs> disappointed about that. But yeah. I didn't cook that chicken. Okay, all right. Somebody <laughs> did something wrong there. <laughs> I'll tell you what, my old cat would jump into that cage to uh, to get the chicken.
He's pretty feral too. Feral cat controller John Bowden, who was part of a team working on a project to eliminate feral cats from Clark Island in the Ferno Group, speaking there with our reporter Lucy Cutting. Now, coming up on the Country Hour, shearing the alpaca herd, plus details of the prices paid at this year's Nutrient Classic for the horses, and a check on the weather. First up, the news headlines with Will Murray. G'day, Tony. Clarence City Council in southern Tasmania has lodged an appeal after the federal court dismissed its claims against the Commonwealth and Hobart International Airport. The council is claiming that Hobart Airport owes it millions of dollars in unpaid rates. The airport is in the Clarence Council area but sits on Commonwealth-owned land. Mayor Brendan Blomley says council is pursuing an appeal based on advice from senior council. Thousands of Australian businesses have been affected after mobile point-of-sale provider Square suffered a worldwide outage this morning. Square provides small readers and terminals for payments via card. The outage lasted only a couple of hours, with many businesses reporting they were unable to take any payments. And Tony, I can say it limited access to coffee here at the ABC this morning and nearly caused a riot. But in sport... Australia's T20 captain Aaron Finch has retired from international cricket. The 36-year-old quit the one-day format last year but stayed on as skipper for the T20 side during the World Cup in Australia. And Finch will continue to play in T20 domestic competitions. Tony, more news from Lucy Shannon at one o'clock. Yes, and the news hounds need their beans, Don't right? they just, yeah. me included. <laughs> when I said riot, I meant one man riot myself. Go, go and make your 10th <laughs> cup of coffee. I will immediately. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> See you, Will. Uh, will Murray there. And uh, now let's check the weather. Luke Johnston joins us from the Bureau. G'day, Luke. Good afternoon, Tony. How are you going? Are you a bean man? I, I think so. I think so. <laughs> my I'm a wife, fan of baked beans, but the kids love them. My wife calls me a has been, but anyway. Um, <laughs> what What is it today? Is it sunny? Is it cloudy? What is it? It's it's somewhere in between. It's one of those days where that's probably going to be the most interesting thing I'll, I'll talk about, really. Yeah. Um, it's, it's somewhere between a mostly sunny and a partly cloudy, or a mostly... Cloudy and partly sunny. Mostly yeah. Cloudy. Yeah, something I t- or other. I'll tell you what, yeah. let's let's call it clummy. Clummy. Mm. That sounds a bit clumsy, though, doesn't it? It's all right. Yeah. It's a no, new no, word. Better than what I could come up with anyway. Clunny. And I, and I had warning, clunny. <laughs> yeah, most, mostly clunny today, whatever that means. Um, today, weather-wise, uh, we, we've got a few light showers persisting into the west coast. Uh, it's you know a little bit of, a little bit more cloud onto the west coast, but mostly clunny elsewhere. Uh, lots of clear sky over, uh, over Launceston and uh, the re- remaining parts of the northwest coast. Uh, up to 9am, we had around 2 to 3 millimetres onto the west coast at lower elevation, but higher ground in the west coast had somewhere between sort of 5 to 8 millimetres. So a few showers uh, look like they're easing, though, for the remainder of today, just uh, up to a millimetre or two more for the west coast, but remaining fine elsewhere until uh, some light showers develop about higher ground in the northeast this evening. Tomorrow, we'll have some light showers about the northeast high ground and developing in the northwest during the morning, but remaining fine elsewhere. Also remaining fine in Launceston, but you'd be lucky to get more than a millimetre or two, potentially up to five millimetres at an elevated site. It's going to be mostly settled for the remainder of this week as a high-pressure system uh, extends a ridge over us from the south. So we do get a trough extend over us from the mainland on Friday, though, which might give us some afternoon thunderstorms and potentially being the wettest day this week, but only up to 15 millimetres if you're lucky enough to get a storm over the top of you. Not a great deal happening. It's uh, Temperatures are slightly above average, peaking on Saturday before our next cool change comes through on Sunday. OK. I did look up the word just to see if it wasn't a rude word and it doesn't exist, so that's good. <laughs> That's uh, yeah. We probably should have done that, that before. That. <laughs>
<laughs> Don't do that again, Tony. Um, nearest word to it was a place in France called Cluny. Cluny. C L U N Y. Oh, yeah, that's that's where that actor was from, wasn't it? Peter Sellers? No. Um, who are you talking about? Clooney. Clooney. I don't know. Anyway, someone will tell us. George Clooney. George. Come on. <laughs> Tony, no. I'm, I'm going bad here. It's, it's uh, probably uh, after your time, I'm guessing. Yeah. There's a warning, there's a warning against Tony. What, what other warnings have we got? No, no other warnings, just a Tony warning today. Okay. And, uh, out on the uh, coastal waters today, generally southwesterly, 10 to 20 knots, tending south to southeasterly up the east coast with some afternoon sea breezes, likely about northern and northeastern coasts today. Tomorrow, southwest to southeasterly winds, 10 to 20 knots still, tending more easterly during the evening. The swell about the western south to the southwesterly to around 3 metres, increasing to 4.5 metres in the south, tending more south to southwesterly, 2.5 to 3.5 metres tomorrow, gradually decaying later in the day. Through Bass Strait today, tomorrow, westerly below 1 metre, and uh, the east coast has got a southerly swell, one one and a half to two and a half metres, increasing to three and a half metres offshore in the lower east, both uh, decreasing a little bit tomorrow. I take it you're a George Clooney fan. No, no. Surely everyone knows the name Clooney, or am I, I was going to show my age too? I was going to say, you can't be a fan of him. He's too good looking, isn't he? Too, too good looking. I know him mostly from the coffee ads, I think, <laughs> yeah. and Ocean's Eleven. That was a good movie. Yeah, all right. I'll go and let you muse on the next forecast, Luke. Thank you. I will. Thanks, Tony. Luke Clooney there from the uh, Bureau. Uh, Coming up, we'll talk alpaca shearing. In an emergency, turn to a source you can trust. At the ABC, we're dedicated to helping you during natural disasters and extreme weather events and to making sure the ABC is part of your safety checklist. Follow your local ABC on social media. Find and save your local ABC radio station. And for more ways to be prepared visit abc.net.au slash emergency. ABC Radio, your emergency broadcaster. It's the Country Hour with Tony Briscoe on ABC Radio Hobart and ABC Northern Tasmania. On our text line, the Jetsonville farmer asks, does Clark Island have dogs and professional shooters as part of the solution for the cats? Don't think so. Um, And Tina says, Tony, they need a golden archer shop on that island. Apparently they can't resist it. Thank you, Tina. 0438922936, that text line number. Well, it's the peak season for alpaca shearers who've been busy removing fleeces from a range of herds across the state. Just think about shearing an alpaca when you're listening to this story. That includes Janelle and Byron Jago, who are also supplying the market where demand for alpaca fleece outstrips supply. They spoke to Larissa Smith about the influence of genetics in the local clip. Here in Tasmania, with our climate, um, first and foremost, shearing alpacas is vital. So our shearing season starts, for us, the first week of November. So we uh, also offer our services statewide to other alpaca owners, um, regardless of if they've got one, two, three or 50 alpacas. We have over 250 clients that we currently work with and we have to get them booked in and we have to make sure that their alpacas are shorn, healthy and happy for the summer period so and that my husband Byron does that with the Rousty team and um, that takes us uh, right through to the end of February we're fully booked six days a week. Byron how's the fleece coming off? At the first start of the season because of the rain period it was very good come off very clean towards the end of the season we always find that it becomes a little bit more dirtier can't really be helped because alpacas love to roll it just makes my job a little bit harder but no, it's 
been pretty good overall. Yeah. And the quality? A lot of the breeder side of it is a lot finer. Very dense fleeces this year, but a lot of the pet owners are now looking for a better type of fleece on their animals because they can make a garment out of them and they're looking for that better quality. The main of it is it has really picked up on the fleece quality as fineness and density of animals. So you see that improvement in genetics becoming more of a focus for owners? Absolutely, and we support any owner that wants to move forward with the quality of fibre that they are currently producing. So if they've got females on property, they can or they have a selection um, accessible to um, our males and therefore we talk to them about layered breeding programs whereby they can um, choose a male that will help bring in that density or bring that standard deviation down or that uh, fineness in micron and, and work on that to create as Byron said that luxurious fibre for that beautiful product and more and more and more we're encouraging pet owners with the two and the three alpacas to send their fleece off to um, mini meals and create the, uh, get that yarn they've they've grown that fleece to to get that yarn process to create that yarn to on sell or wear their own alpaca and it's fabulous. What is it that the buyers want? Buyers in Australia but also overseas, what do they want from the fleece? In the past, you know, we were told and and um, a lot of people diverted to breeding finer, finer, finer microns, you know. Currently at the moment we have sitting in our paddocks around 14.5 micron. Um, which is very fine. <laughs> it's extremely fine. Our top nine alpacas at the moment are sitting at those levels and with very low standard deviation from that micron throughout that saddle fleece so but in reality that's not conceivable to create a garment because of how fine it is it'll break through the machine so therefore you have to mix it with wool or or another medium or then you so ultimately we should be breeding from a commercial perspective for quality garments between the 20 and the 24 micron which is a very very viable commercial micron type of fiber but it's also about the handle you know you can have a 23 micron fleece and have a rough handle so it's about that shut your eyes rub it between your fingers and put it against your neck and how does it feel because you can have a finer micron but you can have it a horrible handle so micron and handle character and crimp is is very important as well but uh, the soft fiber is it's what you're going to feel against your skin so that's what you really got to look for i've seen 26 micron fleece with a very very soft handle it still feels soft but it is very strong because it's a higher micron but yeah it's we're looking at more and more going to the fineness and mixing it with other products so you'll be sending a fair bit of your fleece to new south wales tell me about the change in in buying attitudes towards alpaca fleece in australia or perhaps what you'd like to see uh, for for Tasmanian producers? Um, Unfortunately, um, there's not enough Tasmanians putting their fleece into viable commercial productions. I I hear when Byron and I are out shearing, we hear so much, oh, what can we do with our fleeces? And I'm always encouraging people to get it sent off, to make it into a garment.
garment or um, depending on, on the quality of the fibre. So this year uh, we um, actually this coming Wednesday um, we're having a massive uh, fleece day so all those fleeces are coming out so they've been micron tested, they've been um, bagged separately by colour, their length, their, their staple length and then on Saturday we're taking them across to Victoria where they'll sit for approximately a month before they get transported to Waratah Fibre in New South Wales. From there they will actually be pulled out of those bales and then a classer will be classing those fibres again, those saddles again, into the uh, uh, colour and micron and handle and um, then they'll be baled and um, Waratah Fibre here in Australia have been working very very closely and directly with direct buyers from all over the world. Depending on how much that bale is and how much we have contributed to that colour is how much we will be paid at the end of the day. What, what is the going price for alpaca fleece per kilo? What we call saddles if they've been um, shorn off properly, um, saddle off first to prevent contamination from guard hair then um, and then on the micron levels as well. So you know around that 20, 20, 24 micron we're looking at anywhere between 20 and 25 odd dollars a kilo but then moving up then into the finer microns um, then that dollar's driven further. You're not only making money off, off shearing and producing the fleece, but agritourism is also becoming an important part of your business. What are you doing this week? Today we have a um, fabulous tour uh, booked in um, with a group of able-bodied people that have a keen interest in coming on the farm to have a farm tour. We have all ramped areas to enable people from all abilities to enjoy our farm and enjoy our passion and our alpacas and uh, we think it's fabulous. So Byron will be running that tour today so <laughs> we're quite looking forward to it. It's Ori Elton, alpaca breeder Janelle and Byron Jago chatting to Larissa Smith about the alpaca fleece and uh, shearing the alpacas. Coming up shortly, we'll talk about the Nutrien Classic sale, some high prices paid for some very good horses. First up, though, a report to be published by the Royal Flying Doctor Service has shown that it attends 25% more Priority 1 or life-threatening retrievals across regional Australia since the outbreak of COVID-19. In its Best for the Bush report published now, the RFDS found a huge gap between city and country life expectancy with women in remote areas now more likely to die 19 years before their city counterparts. Federation Executive Director Frank Quinlan says the government needs to act now as part of its Medicare reform. Look, I think the thing that most stands out for us is really the fairly simple proposition that the further you live from a metropolitan centre, the poorer your health is likely to be, the shorter your life expectancy, the higher your mortality rate, and that really culminates in the most remotest parts of Australia where uh, females are likely to die 19 years earlier than their city counterparts and males uh, nearly 14 years earlier than their uh, city counterparts. And what we, what we know from our aeromedical retrieval data is that similarly, the further that you live from a metropolitan centre, the more likely it is that you will be taken to hospital uh, and admitted to hospital because of a preventative, uh, a, a preventable illness. So something that uh, you're ill with, but that with the right early intervention could have been uh, prevented. 
what's going on with women in the bush? Why are they uh, likely to die 19 years earlier than their city counterpart? Look, it's a very complex set of factors and we wouldn't claim to have all of the answers. Mm -hmm. But we know that there are um, lifestyle issues. So we know that um, different people have different access to healthcare, have different uh, access to exercise, have different access to diet and to medication and to management of conditions and so forth. So it's a complex picture. But we did do a little bit of a natural experiment, really, through COVID. It was forced upon us. And what we found uh, during COVID is that a lot of uh, primary health measures uh, were interrupted because communities necessarily had to shut down in order to protect themselves from the virus, or clinicians were unable to practice because, it, for instance, in dental care, it might have just been too risky in those early days of the crisis. Uh, so a lot of people missed out on uh, primary health care and missed out on some of the routine management of their conditions. And what we find now coming out of the COVID immediate crisis anyway is that, uh, that we, we've seen an increase of 25% in what we call our priority one aeromedical retrievals. So what that means is the people that we're encountering in the bush now are sicker than they would have been prior to the uh, COVID pandemic. And I think what that tells us very clearly is that all of those things that we routinely do around primary health and primary uh, care uh, are effective at uh, preventing uh, illness in the first instance or, prevent or, or, or stop illness getting severe uh, once, once it is detected. So is the RFDS able to manage that influx in priority one cases? That's alarming. It's it's very alarming and we prioritise aeromedical retrievals, of course, so people can be assured that, uh, as we describe it, there is a mantle of safety, a mantle of protection that means uh, people will be uh, delivered to tertiary hospitals as and when they're required. But uh, sort of somewhat perversely, what that means is that uh, we're potentially less able to focus on the early intervention and prevention activities that stop that crisis from developing. So part of the reason for publishing the report today is really to say to government, who's in the midst of looking at a reform of the health system and in particular reform of the Medicare system, to say to governments, whether it's the Royal Flying Doctor Service or whether it's an Aboriginal controlled medical centre or some other service, we need to shift the focus towards early intervention and prevention because it's effective and because it works and because it stops people from becoming more seriously ill. Your studies also found, though, that more than 44,000 people in remote areas of Australia have no access to any type of primary healthcare service within one hour's drive. Now, most people in the bush are, are very familiar with having to drive more than an hour to medical help, but why, why did you need to highlight this? Look, the Institute of Health and Welfare uh, used the one-hour drive time as one way of measuring what might be called reasonable access. So if we ask ourselves the question, what does reasonable access to healthcare look like? That's actually a pretty complicated question. A one-hour drive time is one way of looking at it. But we also know, for instance, that uh, across the board, there are a whole lot of other things that can have an impact, even, even quite close to metropolitan centres. So do people have access to 
public transport? Can people afford the services that are close by? Do the services that are close by actually have the clinicians that people need? Uh, are these services distributed appropriately across different parts of the country? So what we're recommending in this report is that together with governments, uh, the, both the Australian government and state and territory governments, we'd like to have a discussion about what reasonable access might properly mean because uh, telehealth measures, for instance, uh, allow us to deliver some things into remote communities, um, but other things are much better dealt with face-to-face. -face. We need to, I think, have a bit of a shared definition about what reasonable access to, to care is so that we can then go to those governments and say, okay, well, if we're going to manage heart disease, this is what needs to be provided. If we're going to manage diabetes, this is what needs to be provided so that people are getting the right care at the right time and we can prioritise our very limited resources. By what you're defining as reasonable access, would you like mandates around that definition so that it makes very clear which areas of our country aren't able to access primary health care? Yes. So we, we'd like some pretty clear definitions that say, okay, for, for a typical citizen in general or perhaps even for particular target groups that we consider to be at risk, this is what a picture of services look like. This is the sort of early intervention and screening that we could expect people to have access to. These are the sorts of mental health services that we would expect people to have access to. These are the sorts of dental care services that we'd expect people to have access to because dentist, dent, dental care is a, a huge issue and has impacts on lots of other health concerns. So that we can then use that set of definitions as the basis for planning and we can allocate our limited resources to areas where there is the greatest need. Please tell me there was at least one bright spot in your report. What's the bush doing well? Look, I think, um, strangely, that, that natural experiment that I talked about earlier uh, really does tell us that uh, early intervention, prevention and primary health care is effective. So we, we had to withdraw some of those services over the course of the COVID crisis and we saw more severe illness uh, increase over the, the course of the crisis. So what that tells us is that the things we're doing about running primary health clinics in the bush, about taking uh, teams with all sorts of different expertise, GPs, nurses, mental health practitioners, physiotherapists, uh, dentists and others into communities, what, what that shows us is that that is effective and can be quite effective over a relatively short period of time. So the right kind of investment over a short period of time can really turn around some of the trends that we've identified in the report today. Yeah, Frank Quinlan, Federal Executive Director of the Royal Flying Doctor Service, speaking there to Amy Phillips about the latest report from the service called Best for the Bush. Finally, today, after a huge 10 days at the Australian Equine and Livestock Event Centre in Tamworth, a lot of very expensive performance horses have changed hands at the Nutrien Classic event. Top price was $400,000 for a mare, but a couple of other horses sold for over $200,000 each. Mike Rowland from the Nutrien Equine ran through the results from the sale with Amelia Bernasconi. Day one saw the, the best come out of the, the sale from a, a top prices point of view with that um, mare for $400,000 ductacular. But um, consistently across the uh, the four days, we saw the, the big prices rolling out. And even on uh, day four yesterday, um, the, the sale finished really strongly with uh, the top yesterday being a beautiful little four-year-old mare of uh, Todd Graham's from Banyara Park, uh, 225,000 was the uh, the top for the day yesterday. and. Um, Ben McNaughton from up there at Walker, a uh, $200,000 uh, 
mayor. Um, very satisfied. A huge day actually for the mayors yesterday on day four. Uh, an average just just for yesterday for the mayors of fifty three thousand six hundred and sixty six dollars with a a ninety two percent clearance. So people were really chasing those uh, those mayors yesterday. And obviously everyone comes to the classic with their horses ready, but I really thought particularly some of those two-year-old, um, two-year-old fillies mares, they were just going so well for that age and bringing the money to to go with that. You're so right, Amelia. They sure were. And um, two-year-olds look across the board. We sold 124 two-year-olds over the four days. They averaged twenty-four thousand and sixty-four dollars. So, um, you know that that in itself reflects the value that buyers saw. As you as you pointed out in those horses, the the way that they could come out and the way they performed, in you know huge credit to to the breeders for providing the right type of stock and also the trainers who have exhibited them here. Explain to us, Mike, how it goes from the horses that were that were bought and sold this year. What opportunities they have to compete with you in twenty twenty four? Yeah, sure. Look, they the, well particularly for those two year olds, they get three years of being able to come back and have a shot at the classic. Um, and uh, they get that opportunity until they become open age horses. So they, that's the, cl- the classic camp draft itself, which is uh, $100,000 in prize money. That was this year, and we can only see that increasing with the, the sort of quality there. But um, each of those horses get the opportunity to come back and take part in either the challenge, uh, the, the classic itself the, in, the, in terms of the camp draft, um, or in a number of our other camp draft events, being the, the Young Guns, the, the Open, um, the, across the board, there's five separate events that they can take part in each year. And, um, and you know, this year we saw over 1,100 people line up uh, to be a part of those five events to, uh, to end up with, with five people only taking the big money away. But throughout, you know, there, there is round money and opportunities, place money and opportunities for people to earn a quid out of each of those events as they go. Yeah, and year-round as well. I mean, we're only seeing records broken in the prize money field across camp drafting, um, you know, quarter horse are cutting as well. We are, Amelia. And look, interesting for us, you know, uh, this year, we, we sold 110 horses less here this year, or offered 110 horses less, I should say, here this year than what we did last. And and part of that is all about uh, a secondary sale that we've now set up uh, in September, which is all about the open age horses. So we've we took less open age horses into this event this year for the very reason of being able to create uh, this brand new event in in uh, September where they'll they'll be camp drafting for the the open age horses um, competing for big purses there and and uh, a sale but even with those 110 less horses would you believe we grossed more than we did last year it's it was Gosh. a phenomenal sale 17 million and 92,000 was where we finished last night and indeed, I know there's some deals being done to finalise some of those horses yet, so we will see that grow. The The average price this year, $32,680 in comparison to 26900 last year. So it's got a, it, it all goes beautifully from the industry's perspective, but more importantly, it gives breeders the, the faith that they're looking in the right directions, that people you know, are really chasing their stock. That's Mike Rowland from Nutrient Equine talking to Amelia Bernasconi about the big horse sale at Tamworth. Some big numbers there ending the country hour for today. Don't forget ABC Rural Online and our ABC Rural Facebook page. We will catch you after midday tomorrow.